0: If you would, please stand and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, or maybe opening your Bibles and then stand, uh, to First Corinthians chapter 10. Just if you look around this morning, you'll probably see some people wearing stickers that say, we are going with gospel hope, and if you're wondering... Don't we have Gospel Hope here? We do. But we're sending out a church plant called Gospel Hope. And so if you see those stickers, really, we've started up our core group. I think we have about 75, between 75 and 80 uh, people, uh, 25 family units, I think, who are planning to go to North Knoxville prayerfully around January to launch our church there. So they're kind of getting started, meeting together, they meet on Sunday nights. And so if you see one one of those stickers, just encourage that person that you see, if they're the one that's wearing that, and pray for them. That's why they have them to be reminded that as we're sending them out, they're, they're part of us. And we're sending out our very heart, as it were, for them to go. So we want to pray and encourage them as they go. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. "'For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well-pleased.' they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, and as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Please be seated. I had the privilege this weekend of attending the junior, senior college leader and uh, youth core group retreat, bundle up a lot of things into that one retreat. In fact, we just got back this morning. We drove back uh, from Gatlinburg and had a joyful time. Really, we gather our young people together, the the older of our young people that we might really spend a, a weekend training, preparing them to be the examples in the youth group that we long for them to be. As young adults, we want them to, to, to work back down, to look back down, and draw those others up, the, those, those younger ones who are coming into the youth ministry, and really we want them to set an example, to live, to walk, to, to serve Jesus. And so we just take some time to think, to pray, to enjoy playing games together. If I don't shake your hand, it's because I play too many games of Gaga Ball, and if you don't know what that is, you can join us for the retreat next next time, I guess. But smack a ball around, and I think I played a few too many games. But it's not, not of course, just about the, the games. It's not even just about being youth. Right? The issue is that we are part of the body of Christ. When we do a retreat like that, we're just being reminded that we are part of God's people. And not even really, in once it's just this church, but also all of God's people. We're identified with him. See, young people are not just young people, not just adolescents, and we kind of set them aside as some unique grouping. No, they are members of the body of Christ. And so that's what we exalted in. That's what we celebrated, that we are part of that, and that our young ones who are coming up are the same, so there's this unique identity we celebrate in Christ as well as a unique example that we want to set in Christ. And that's very similar to what our passage is about this morning. A unique identity that we have in Christ and a unique example that we need to set and the examples that we need to follow that God has sent before us that we would faithfully walk with him. And Certainly we as a culture, no more, you know, not only our young people but all of us, who are in desperate need of being reminded that we are not to be identified with this culture. As much as we delight in our heritage as, you know, it's a delightful blessing to be to be born into the United States. If you've not lived in or been to other countries, you have no idea the blessing that it is to be here. And yet, this is not our home. And so even as our country spirals down, even as it abandons, certainly the principles upon which it was founded, that is the, the fact that there is law, that there is a God who, who, who is the one who establishes law, those sorts of things, yet we need not overly saddened because our identity was never in our country. And even as those ideals fade, the ideals of Christ have never faded. The church holds them dear. The church holds them strong. And sure, we delight in a society when it will at least echo that reality, but we don't need our society to echo that reality for us to stand firm and strong. In fact, sometimes it's just, it's easier to identify who we are when the world around us is abandoning that. So let's remember that we are identified with Christ. We don't partake of our culture. We don't allow it to bully us into doing what it wants or looking like it does or following the same ideals that it has. We never have. We were never about American idealism or about rugged individualism or even about the law and morality. We were about Jesus. And that's who we're identified with. And that's always been true. God's chosen people are always to be specially identified with him, whether that's Old Testament or new. And that's Paul's point. God's chosen people in the Old Testament, his ethnic people, Israel, were chosen to be identified uniquely with him. They were to serve him, love him, and honor him as a result of the work that he had done to draw them to himself. And Paul is using that example of Old Testament Israel to then point to us, the church, the spiritual children of Abraham, as we studied last week, the physical children in the old, the spiritual children in the new, and the delight that we have to have been set free, delivered by God, identified with him. And Paul is giving a solemn warning. As happened in the Old Testament, that is God's chosen people, when they walked away from him, when they chose idolatry over him, he brought his discipline because he is a jealous and holy God. The way he treats his chosen people in the Old Testament is a picture for us, an analogy of how he treats his chosen people in the new. And those are things that we need to stand up and take aware of. A solemn warning found in this passage, but really we've been beginning by focusing on the tremendous blessing, the benefits that Israel received that we sometimes forget, right? We look at the Old Testament, well, you know, those are secondary benefits compared to what we have. No, those are tremendous blessings to God's ethnic people, and we need to rejoice in the picture of deliverance that they are, even as we consider the pictures of our own deliverance, which really we celebrate this morning, at least one of them. And in two weeks, we're going to celebrate baptism and, and that ordinance which demonstrates our identity with Christ, that we are in union with him. And this morning, we celebrate the fact that we have received spiritual sustenance from him. And those, those are pictured in our text from the Old Testament, and Paul will draw them to our attention. So what we'll see is that God's supernatural protection, guidance, and deliverance of the Israelites, or His unique means of identifying them with Him as His special chosen people. And it's a beautiful picture and example of how New Testament believers identify with God through the person and work of Christ. God's supernatural protection, guidance, and deliverance of the Israelites was his unique means of identifying them with him as his special chosen people. And it's a beautiful picture and example of how New Testament believers identify with God through the person and work of Christ. What we will see is that ultimately all spiritual blessings come to us through Christ, Old or New Testament. Well... I just want to read you the overview of chapter 10 verses 1 through 23 because we're digging down, seeking to understand why Paul is using these examples as a helpful, it's helpful for us to see how we use the Old Testament. So we're taking a little bit more time than we might because Paul is really using verses 1 through 10 as just as an example. And yet we're digging into it to kind of see why he's doing that because I think it's helpful for us. It's, it is helpful for us. Yet don't lose the forest for the trees. That is, the point here is pretty clear. What well, I'm going to talk about this morning, the rock of Jesus and the spiritual rock that follows them and spiritual food and drink, At the overall picture is clear. So let me, let me remind you of the picture of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 23, and it's all about fleeing idolatry. Verse 14 that I read, therefore, my brethren, flee from idolatry. So here's the picture. All Israelites experience God's blessing, deliverance, and provision under Moses' leadership, as evidenced by God, leading them in a pillar of cloud, delivering them through the Red Sea, and providing them food and drink in the wilderness. Most Israelites, in their arrogance, took God's provision for granted. They became idolatrous, immoral, rebellious grumblers, sparking God's jealous displeasure and reaping the terrible result of God's discipline. All the Corinthians had received God's blessing, deliverance, and provision under Christ's leadership, As evidenced externally by their baptism, indicating union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And by their regularly partaking of the Lord's Supper, signifying their receiving the benefits of Christ, paying their penalty, taking God's wrath, and clothing them in his righteousness. All the Corinthians, therefore, should consider as an example the fate of the Israelites, whose solidarity with God through Moses did not keep them from being slaughtered in the wilderness when they pursued idolatry and immorality." Some of the Corinthians then, in their ignorance, were in danger of presuming that the benefits they had received in Christ meant that they could pursue participation in demonic worship services while also partaking of the Lord's Supper, and that somehow this would not provoke God's jealousy, and they would not fall under his discipline. And they were dead wrong, literally. So this morning, we'll begin by continuing our look at Israel's example of arrogant idolatry in the face of tremendous spiritual blessing. Last week, we did this by looking at the first blessing given to them, the blessing of being baptized into Moses. We'll finish that out. We only got through verse one, and then we'll work our way prayerfully all the way to verse five before we celebrate really one of the the key aspects of this text, which is driving us towards an understanding of the Lord's Supper, what it really is. So it's a beautiful time to be celebrating this ordinance this morning. So remember last week, we looked at the blessing of being baptized into Moses. So look into your text. Paul said, I do not want you to be unaware. This is verse 1 of chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. As a shepherd, he's reminding them uh, that they need to read their Bibles. I don't want you to be unaware. He says, there's Old Testament examples of what you need to do, so make sure that you know them. And he calls them brethren. Remember, he's speaking to them as believers, part of the family of God. Certainly, it is true that most likely that not everyone in the church of Corinth was a believer. But Paul's not identifying, he's not saying, well, there's some unbelievers there and you need to be careful that you don't get involved in idolatry because you'll fall away. He's talking to believers. He's not talking about their falling away from God, he's talking about them being disciplined by God, even unto death, as we find at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, because they were dishonoring him by by practicing idolatry as God's people. Those who were identified with him, those who were in Christ. God takes that, of course, very seriously. When he's given you Christ, he's placed you into his body If you were to do those things which would identify you with other gods, God takes that very seriously, just as he did in the Old Testament. God has not changed. He is the same. And we need to remember that from Testament to Testament. There's different things he's doing as far as how he works his plan out, but his character and nature are not different old to new. And we make a huge mistake if we somehow think that that is the case. The Corinthians were in danger of making that mistake. So we saw that God led the people through Moses, right? He used the cloud and the sea to really identify his people with him. And Moses was leading them, and yet it was God who was leading really through Moses' leadership. He was the one that was the physical face, the, the faithful man who was leading in such a way that they would be identified with God through Moses and his leadership. When the cloud moved, Moses said, let's go. When the Red Sea, when it needed to be opened, he stood and put up his staff and then led the people through. There was a necessary function of a physical man as a leader so that the people might be identified with God through that. And that's what our text says. Right? They were all under the cloud. They were all went through the Red Sea. That is, he guided and protected them in the cloud. and Then he delivered them through the Red Sea. And this was their unique identification with God. God, remember, they had gone down into Israel or down into Egypt, a small band of loosely, a really one family, but they come out of Egypt, what, two million strong. God used the womb of Egypt to, to really birth his nation, and now he's identifying them with him as he leads them and guides them and as he delivers them. He did this for no other nation. That's the point here. God only identified with one group of people, his chosen ethnic people, and he did not identify with any other group in this way. It wasn't the Egyptians who were delivered through the Red Sea. They were drowned in it. It is the Israelites who were delivered. It wasn't, the, it wasn't some other nation, the Moabites, who were led by the cloud and the pillar. It was the Israelites. They were unique in, amongst every nation in the Old Testament. And so this is the example that he's giving. And he's then making the application to us. We also are God's uniquely chosen people. Not ethnically now, but spiritually, which means not... Fake doesn't mean imaginary. Spiritual means it's a real, actual spiritual transaction which has gone on to place us into God's people. One people, all the New Testament, right, with two manifestations, two two ways of choosing: an ethnic choosing and then the spiritual choosing that we have. So God delivered the people through Moses. He led the people through Moses, and really, kind of finalizing that point, verse number three, God was identified with the people through Moses. That's what this baptism idea is. Verse 2. And all, that is all the fathers, all the Israelites, God's ethnic chosen people, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And this is where this gets really interesting because baptism is not an Old Testament concept. You will not find it there, the idea of identification through a kind of baptism. It's a New Testament concept. So I, th- I think this is, this is our, our understanding that Paul is now taking what's, something the Corinthians knew and understood, their baptism, their physical baptism in water. And he's saying this, the Old Testament, there was a picture, a similar thing. When you're baptized in the New Testament, you are you're identifying with God. That is a physical act by which you represent that spiritual union that you have. And it's an important act. God gave us two ordinances, and we are not to ignore them. Just because the physical act does not make the transformation, it doesn't make the physical act of baptism unimportant. Right, just as being transformed, being taken by God through the Red Sea, being made, and God making provision through the pillar and cloud, that didn't somehow spiritually transform the people. It was their, the picture of their identification with God, and it was important. It mattered. It says, look, it mattered in the Old Testament? It matters to you. They were baptized. But it is fascinating that he says they were baptized into Moses. Do not mix your dispensations, I could probably put it that way. He does not say, well, when they were baptized, this idea of their being identified with God, it really was through the sacrifice of Jesus. He does not say that. What we'll find is it was through the work of Jesus, the power of Jesus, but not through the sacrifice of Christ. We are identified in the New Testament through the sacrifice of Christ. They were identified through Moses. What does that mean? That Moses' leadership used by God, their following and obeying Moses was the means by which they demonstrated their belief in God. There's only one way to be saved, old or new. You believe in God by faith. But in the Old Testament, that belief was represented by or exemplified by following Moses. If you didn't walk through the Red Sea with Moses, you got left on the bank and killed. You had to follow him. Further along, we will find that then Moses receives what? The law. And so the way to identify with God was through the law. You weren't keeping the law to get saved in the Old Testament either. And ultimately, God does away with that means because it was temporary. But in the Old Testament, that's how you identified who you were with. I'm with God because I obey Moses. Now, lest you doubt that, remember that we read last week this idea that when they, were, when they went with Moses through the Red Sea and, th- and obeyed through the cloud. They were identifying with God. Exodus 14, 31. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That's the idea. They weren't believing in Moses for salvation. They were believing in God, but they had to follow Moses. That's how they were identified. This idea, this baptism then this idea here is that they are identified with. I mean, the word itself, the New Testament word, means to dip, to, to put into water, to immerse. But that, that the word, the physical word of being immersed into is the idea of being identified with. You are immersed into something, fully identified because it, you're submerged within it. Well, That's the idea here. They were identified with God through Moses. So it is said they were baptized into him. In the cloud, and as they followed God through Moses in the leadings of the cloud, and as they followed God through Moses' leading as they walked through the Red Sea. They were then identified, baptized into Moses, identified with him as he represented them to God. They were now God's people. William Hendrickson, the experience of being under the cloud and passing through the sea, both related to the identification, that's the idea of baptism, identification with Union with, identification of the children of Israel as a people now separated from Egypt and under God's prote- protection. In short, by means of the cloud and the sea, God separated to himself a people. The Exodus must be seen from both an historical and a spiritual perspective. Essentially, the nation begins here at the Exodus, and they're identified now with God. And that's why the, the, the ordinance of baptism happens when... At the very beginning of your spiritual journey, that's the idea, that you are identified with God. That's when it's supposed to happen. So by the way, if you haven't been baptized, I would urge you, you we have a baptismal service next week. You need to do that. Not to save you, but so that you identify properly with God. Externally, you tell others, I'm identified with him. That's how we do that in the New Testament. You don't get to go through the Red Sea. You don't get to be under the cloud. You get to get baptized in this tank here, or wherever it was that you were. But it's not unimportant. It's a vital picture. These are not playthings, not games that God plays. Just as communion is not, neither is baptism. And really, Paul draws that out here. That's how important being identified with God is. And they all received that benefit, and they took it lightly. There's the idea. It's a warning there. God identified them with Moses, which really was identifying them with him, and they took it for granted. See, in the New Testament, we are directly then placed into the body of Christ, not into an ethnic people. We're not Jews. It's extended now to us, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Four by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. Isn't that sweet? We don't have to be Jews. You had, you had to be part of the nation of Israel, God's chosen ethnic people to go through the Red Sea. You didn't get, the Egyptians didn't get to go. But now God has extended those blessings through Christ, but this is a New Testament work, not an Old Testament one that we read back in, or New Testament that we read back into the Old. The Spirit of God coming to place us as God's spiritual children into the body of Christ is a new covenant work, it's powerful. It's the culmination of the picture of what happened in the Old Testament. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves are free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit, placed into the body of Christ by the Spirit coming to live inside of us. Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, identified with Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Romans 6 really speaks to this. Right? It talks about baptism. Really, baptism in Romans 6 is not speaking of water baptism. It's speaking of identification with, union with. Romans 6.3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Identified with, placed in union with him in his death so that we have the benefits of that. It goes on to say, verse four, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, that identification with, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. So our identification with Christ in his death enables us to be identified with him in his life and we get both of the benefits, having died with him and now also living with him. It's a spiritual work done for us that our physical baptism signifies. We're identified with God through Christ because the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. Now, again, this, is, this was a building upon this New Testament work, this new covenant outpouring of the Spirit was the promise right? That, was, that the Old Testament was building towards. So what was going on under Moses was not secondary for those in the Old Testament. It was necessary, it was essential As it moved towards the benefits that we have now, the New Testament was building upon this work of the old. Because the idea is not that Moses was somehow unnecessary, or God was just, here's just, Moses is a picture, and he didn't do what he was supposed to do, and the the law didn't accomplish what it was supposed to, and now we're gonna gonna change it. No, everything that God did in the Old Testament was building towards what he would do in the new, and all of it was necessary. Hebrews 3.2. Speaking of the, the supremacy of Jesus, which we love, Jesus is greater than Moses, because you're thinking right now, Jesus is greater than Moses. Why are we talking about Moses? Because Paul does, and because the Old Testament does. And it says this in Hebrews 3, he, Jesus, was faithful to him, God, who appointed him, Jesus, as, so he was faithful, Jesus was faithful, as Moses also was in all his house. Moses was faithful. Yes, he sinned. Yes, he didn't even get to go into the promised land because he blew it with the rock and didn't portray God as worthy, but that didn't undo his faithful work to be the proper example to the people. They were baptized into Moses. He accomplished his work. That passage goes on to say, Moses was faithful then in all his house, for he, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Not because Moses failed but just as so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Moses is just a house, not just. He was the house, the most important thing going on in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament period of time. Moses was the house. God was building a house of his chosen people. But Moses now, as Christ has come, does not get the honor because the builder of the house is better. Now the builder has come, and therefore we are in the builder We get into the house through the very builder of the house, no longer just entering, as it were, into the house itself, Old Testament. What, What a sweet thing. But Christ is better than Moses then, not because Moses was a failure or did not do what God called him to do or it wasn't important what he did, but because Moses was a transitionary part of God's work leading to the work of Christ. Moses needed to be faithful so that his greater counterpart could accomplish his work and word. Moses was never intended to be the Messiah. He was the necessary precursor to the Messiah. And I'm belaboring this point a bit because it's kind of a, a new thing. Well, I don't know if it's new, but in the past 20 years, you hear everybody saying, well, well, Jesus is the, is the true Moses. He's not. Jesus was never, Moses was never supposed to be Jesus. Jesus is not Moses. Jesus is better than Moses because Jesus builds on Moses' work so that he can accomplish the final thing. So therefore, we, we're not looking at the Old Testament People as failures. David was a failure, so we needed Jesus. No, he was not. David needed to accomplish his work so that Jesus would come. Moses was a failure, so we needed Jesus. No, he was not. He accomplished his work properly so that Jesus would come. God used faithful people in the Old Testament, just as he will use faithful people in the New. He works through people, even as God does his work. See, now that Christ is here, do we just say, well, Jesus does all the work? Well, certainly he does it within us, of course, but we do the work. The church is being built through his people. You need to be faithful so that God's work is accomplished. And when you fail and fall, it doesn't mean that you can't be faithful. It doesn't even mean that you aren't faithful in the bigger picture. God will use you. So please understand, we learned that from the Old Testament. We'll just look past it and say, none of that matters because Jesus has come. It all matters because it built the foundation for what Jesus would do. And that's what Paul is saying. Look, you need to look back. You need to see what happened to them is a picture, it's an analogy of what will go on. It's a real, true historical narrative, God working then and then now moving us forward into the New Testament to partake of these even greater blessings. So this idea of baptism being for us a beautiful picture of being unified with God and that's built back into, we can look at the Old Testament and say, what, what what a beautiful physical picture of going through the sea, of being under the cloud, as being identified with God. And we have the precious privilege of doing that and for us, Water baptism becomes the means by which we give testimony to that reality, and it's a sweet thing. I don't think we take it as important as we ought to. Many times, I mean, we just kind of do baptisms. Well, these are, are vital pictures of what God is doing, and it reminds us that Bible story. Bible stories matter. Real historical narratives matter. We don't look at them and find them valuable because everything there represents Jesus, but because everything there points to the greatness of God's saving character that He would provide in Christ. We say that the Old Testament is not Christocentric. That is, everything we see there is, well, how does that recapitulate what Jesus did in the New Testament? Or how is David and Goliath really a picture of of the cross? We don't need to see that because all of the things that David and Moses and others were doing leads to the cross. The Old Testament is not Christocentric, as it were. It is Christotelic. That is, it has an end goal of pointing us to Christ. Now, having said that, the sweetness of what Paul is going to present here. And so although we do not look back into the Old Testament to to find, well, how does every part of the temple portray Jesus? Well, we do look back in the Old Testament and see is that every time provision was made for God's people, guess what? Jesus was providing it. So you don't have to look back and see all the events that Jesus portrays. We just want to look back and say everything that happened that was good for God's people, Jesus was part of. You can take that to the bank because of our next part of our text. So let's go do that. The blessing of being nourished by Christ. This is fascinating, joyful, delightful. It says, and, verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. God sustained, God through Christ, sustained the people with spiritual food. I'll fill these in for you. God, number two, through Christ, sustained the people with spiritual drink. And then number three, God provided for the people through Christ's sustaining Presence all during the time in the wilderness. That's what Paul is saying. First, the spiritual food. Well, like, we've well, we got the sea and the cloud. Well, what's the spiritual food? I think immediately our minds go to what? The manna, and that would be correct. Now, you're thinking spiritual food. Wait a minute, that was real food. Of course, that's why I keep telling you that spiritual things are not imaginary. Why is it spiritual? Because it was produced by the power of God. I think our best way to understand that is God plans and prepares for them to get the manna. Jesus actually creates the manna, and the Spirit brings it. That's, that's what I would propose to you. The text does not reveal all of those details, but it's very similar to creation. Or so we move into John chapter one. In, in the Old Testament it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And yet in John chapter one it says what? It says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then it says all things were created by him, the word. You're like, what? Because God plans and prepares creation. Jesus speaks it forth, he brings it, and the spirit of God completes the work. Old Testament, New Testament, the Trinity's at work. And we see that pictured here in this passage. You have the manna, which was a spiritual food because it was supernaturally produced by God, and because it pointed to something beyond itself. The manna wasn't just manna to be eaten, although it was physical bread to keep them spiritually alive, or to keep them physically alive. There was a spiritual point there. Deuteronomy 8:3. He humbled you and let you be hungry. It's It's in the wilderness. With, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. The man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The manna had a bigger point. It was just food. The manna itself had no special properties, except the fact that it had nourishment in it that enabled them to live. Physical properties, spiritual food and physical properties that had a spiritual picture. Look, I'm providing you this manna, you need me. And then we find in the, Old, in the New Testament in John 6, what does Jesus say? And when they talk about the bread, it says, they said to him, what do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven, it's my father. And he gives you the true bread out of heaven for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. In New Testament terms then, Jesus is our manna. He is the one who makes provision for us. And so we see him, there's a spiritual point for Jesus that he is our living bread and that we actually partake of that. So we don't have a a physical bread that we eat that keeps us alive, but Jesus himself is now sustaining our spiritual life. Now, that's the uniqueness of communion because as we come, what's the picture of the spiritual food and drink? Well, Paul will link it directly in verse 16 where he says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ, a sharing, this identification, this communion pointed to in the Old Testament through the manna eaten, that I, they all eat it together, which make, get, identifies them with God through Moses. Well, now we all partake of this wafer, and in and of itself has no special property. But what it does is it reminds us of and gives us a picture of the work of Christ on our behalf. So it's important, it matters that we take hold of the physical element But not because of the properties it has, but because of the properties that Jesus has. He is now the true bread. They had to eat the manna to stay alive and, again, to be identified as the people of God. So that's the spiritual food. I submit to you that it is Jesus who presented that spiritual food, or really, who created it for them. Why? Because we see here very very clearly that it was Jesus who created the water for them to drink. That's the point here. So let's go here, verse 4. So they all ate the same spiritual food, the manna. They communed with God by eating that which he had provided, which proved to them that they needed him. And then they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's like, what are we talking about? The spiritual drink, of course, is the water that was provided in the wilderness, real water that they actually drank to stay alive, but they all had to have it. If they didn't get the water from the rock, what happened? They died. If they didn't eat the manna when it came every morning, what happened? They died. There was no alternative. That's the picture. Old Testament, that's what's happening. But here's the beautiful thing. The veil gets pulled aside a bit. Just as in John chapter one, the veil gets pulled aside. We see Jesus at creation. So we see Jesus here in the desert with the Israelites. Right? This is not simply a metaphor. Let's find, well, okay, if Jesus is the rock, then maybe Jesus is, the, is in the Old Testament. Maybe he's like the door of the tabernacle. No, this is a, this is a metaphor of a reality. Jesus was actually there. It's not just a picture about Jesus. Oh, we have spiritual things now. They had spiritual things then. So, no, Jesus was there. That's the idea. He was with, following, it says here, probably best just going along with Israel all throughout the wilderness, the presence of Jesus. And when water came from the rock, he was the one creating it. He brought the manna, so he brings the water. So he's that, as it were, the spiritual rock is, the rock produces supernatural water, and the point being, they need it to survive. And Jesus, the, the Bible tells us, Jesus is the one that did that. There's, no, there's no, no, not any mysterious allegory here. There's no allegory at all. This is reality. It's a picture. It's an analogy that Jesus was really there and he's really with us as well. So this spiritual drink. Now, you're, you're probably thinking, now, wait a minute. Uh, I thought there was only two times where the water came from the rock. No, we're only told of two times when that happened, two very important times. One well, really one at the beginning and one at the end, towards the end. I think our best understanding from this text and from other Old Testament texts is that the, all throughout their time in the wilderness they needed water from the rock. Think about it. Where are they getting water in the middle of the wilderness? Nowhere. If you've gone wandered that wilderness a little bit, right? Come to us to Israel next year. Maybe you get to wander a little, I don't know. But nonetheless, Psalm 78:20, behold, he struck the rock, so the waters gushed out, the streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Certainly, you know, speaking of that provision, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, 41, he opened the rock and water flowed. It ran in the dry places like a river. So I think our understanding is that all throughout their time, Jesus was making that provision, bringing the water I think our best understanding is that ultimately it's Jesus who, who provides the bread under God's direction, again, and then implemented directly. It says the spirit was with them also in Numbers 20:11, Moses lifted his hand, struck the rock. Oh, this is where, that's speaking of when Moses strikes the rock and when he was supposed to speak to it. But also the idea that the spirit was with them also throughout all of their time in the wilderness. both All the members of the Trinity, there. One final thought here, remember I said last week that you were supposed to remember when we were talking about the pillar of cloud? How, how am I, you know, because how am I saying, well, Jesus was in all of these things? Well, in the pillar of cloud, you might remember that it talked about the fact that the angel of God was there. Do you remember that? Right. So in that, that was in uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 18. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them so the angel of God was in the cloud. But Exodus 13, 21 says, The Lord, Yahweh, was going before them in the pillar of the cloud. Well, who was it? Yes. Yahweh was there, and it, that's pictured as being the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. Now, do we have justification for seeing in the Old Testament, when it says Yahweh could be God the Father, if that's speaking of a role that he's accomplishing, or it could be God the Son? Of course. Look back at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Jesus' Jesus' statement that he is the Lord works our way back into the Old Testament so that we see that he is Lord, God the Father is God and Lord, and that when we see them in the Old Testament, we can understand the Trinity is at work. I think the idea that that the rock represents who God is, I, I think we can take from this passage that that is talking about Jesus. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect. Deuteronomy 32.18, the rock who begot you. Deuteronomy 32.30, unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up, I think we see that as Christ being their rock, and I think this gives us the right to do that, that we know that Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament, and that, I hope to you, is a great delight. So again, you don't, have to, you don't have to manufacture places to find Jesus there. You can understand that in everything God is doing, Jesus is active in the Old Testament. So when we say he's not in every picture of everything that happens in the Old Testament, we're not somehow sucking Jesus out of the Old Testament. We're simply allowing him to do the work that he actually does. Finding him in the pictures and the types where, that he actually is, but always knowing that He is actively working and that every blessing has always come from God, through Christ, in the power of the Spirit. That's always been true. looks one way in the Old Testament, works its way into the New Testament now, where Christ has come, and really, again, links us then to this idea of the Lord's Supper, communion. So we come celebrating what? That it is true that the, the greater one has come, the builder of the house is here, and now when we put faith and trust in Christ, we partake of him The salvation that he brings, we're identified with him all together. It's why we do this together. You see, the Israelites took the manna all together. Paul will make this point more strongly down further in 1 Corinthians. But we partake together because we're identified with God uniquely as his people. So you don't do this at home. You don't sit at home and do this. We come together and do it because it represents our all being identified us as a local body here and then people all around the world are partaking of communion. believers and we're identified with them, with God uh, and with them as well. So as, as we come this morning, so if the, the men will come and the music team will come, let's uh, really, I think, two things to think about in, in light of this as, as you partake. One is to remember and delight in your identification with God through Christ and the work of Christ, and that this is a permanent work now as the Spirit of God indwells us uniquely in the New Testament, allowing Jews and Gentiles, all people to come together as God's spiritual people. So we rejoice in that, but also it's a challenge to us because remember, this passage is part of a tight warning. Don't adulterate the nature of your being identified with God. When you partake of communion, You cannot also be trying to identify with the gods of this world. That's what the Corinthians were trying to do. They were going to the temples and and once again being at those sacrifices. And Paul says, look, you can't do that. That's idolatry. And God is displeased. That causes him to be jealous. You're his people. You can't pretend you're somebody else. You can't say, well, there's no other real gods. So I'll go ahead and, and be identified with the gods of this world in this sacrifice. Now, the encouragement to you and to us. It said, I do not believe for a minute that most of you are involved in that kind of idolatry. That you are tempting God by being involved in things which literally place you in in, in being part of demonic sacrifices or, or worship services. I we talked about a lot of those a couple of weeks ago. You know, are you partaking in Catholic mass? Probably most of you aren't. Are you going in marching and marching in pride presentations and other things that say, I'm identifying with the gods of this world? You're not doing that. So you don't have to secretly, I'm not, I'm not urging you here, wow, maybe I'm really doing that. You might be, and you need to change because God will be jealous and he's coming for you. But most of you, I'm not calling you, I gotta dig deep, oh no, maybe I'm somehow participating in demonic worship. The vast majority of you aren't. It does not mean that you don't need to look at your life to say, what might be ascending in primacy over Jesus. We all need to do that. That's a wrestle. Idols come for us. But most of you are not pursuing the world in demonic sorts of worship. But be careful. Because Paul says, look, Corinthians, the the Israelites had all this benefit, and they went back and did that. Do not go back in that direction. Do not march in that direction, which some of them actually were. So as you partake this morning, might it be delighting in your identification with God joyful that he has strengthened you to not be serving idols, but serving him. But then confessing where there are things in your life that are creeping up, those idols of your heart that might be overshadowing the primacy of Christ. So let's stand and sing and prepare our hearts.